Hello, I'm Eugene Chausovsky, a senior Eurasia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. kind of crazy is what you're looking for with guys like us you know we like to shoot we like to blow things up we actually go man i hope i get in a firefight tonight welcome to the stratfor podcast i'm fred burton with clint emerson who has a new book coming out called the right kind of crazy my life as a navy seal covert operative and boy scout from hell clint i really love that title (laughs) hey thanks it took uh it took a whole lot of brains to figure that one out (laughs) (laughs) well um i know that your first book uh 100 deadly skills was um really a fun read i really enjoyed that well i appreciate that i'm glad you like it some people you know are uh, worried by it i like to joke that it's uh you know the most popular book sitting next to a man's toilet. But uh, interestingly <laughs> enough, it went to the uh, – it sat on the New York Times list for eight months. And I don't say that to boast. I say it because it's it's interesting that people are finally taking some ownership in their safety and security posture, which it wasn't like that before. So Hunter Deli Skills was a creative way to get people to start really thinking and being more aware about their surroundings and what bad guys could potentially do. And then, of course, you know, how to how to fend them off if you find yourself in a bad situation. Oh, I think you did a real good job with that. Uh, and I certainly uh, love the drawings in your book. Uh, and we write a lot about uh, personal safety and so forth and business continuity and just taking care of yourself here at Stratfor, too. Now, I've been keeping track of Stratfor for years now. And, uh, and like I was hinting, I don't think I'm smart enough to be on a Strat Four podcast. <laughs> but uh, your articles are are awesome and in depth, and I've definitely leveraged them uh, time and time again, especially when I was deploying. That's awesome. We uh, we love to hear that. Tell me a little bit about the right kind of crazy. What what is uh, the genesis for that, and uh, what are you trying to convey? Uh, right kind of crazy is a different kind of military memoir. Um, it's definitely different than other SEAL books, you know, and I, people joke that, like, when we get our tridents and when we become Navy SEALs, that's when we sign our book deals. But <laughs> um, there's so many of us who've put our stories out there. Uh, but the reality was, was I found it interesting with 100 Deli Skills, um, people were started to become interested in, all right, a guy that puts out all these skills, two books worth. Um, what is his background? Cause it never really covers it in those books. And my publisher was like, Hey, do you want to put something together? And, uh, at first I was kind of like, no, I didn't want to be like all the rest. Um, but I said, you know, I'll do it if you allow some freedom of movement on this thing. I don't want it to read like the mythical Navy SEAL world. I wanted it to be real. I wanted it to be human. Um, and I wanted to convey, a lot of different themes and it was difficult to put it together and, and establish um, a lot of different themes 
without confusing the reader. So in short, it is an, it's an, it's a, it's a underdog story. It's a, um, you know, bad decisions make great stories kind of book. (laughs) So I list out, you know, I tell you all my bad decisions. I, I don't follow the myth of, you know, what some Navy SEAL books follow. I, uh, I follow more of reality, which is we are a bunch of common guys doing uncommon stuff. And, uh, I think it's a fun read. I think it's a roller coaster for sure. It, uh, it weaves personal life together with military life, but the right kind of crazy is what you're looking for with guys like us. You know, we like to shoot, we like to blow things up. We actually go, man, I hope I get in a firefight tonight. (laughs) Um, you know, and that takes a certain amount of crazy to wish these kinds of things. Clint, I've been fortunate to have been around uh, a fair number of former SEALs and special operators in, in my career, and, and certainly the kind of work that, that you have done uh, is uh, simply amazing. I We used to always say when we were agents that, God forbid, if we're ever taken captive or in a hard spot, we hope like hell you guys are coming after us. And the right kind of crazy kind of resonates with me just, just thinking through that uh, – uh, from just my past perspectives as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it resonates with a lot of folks. And once people actually read it, uh, I think it's really going to hit home even more because not only um, are we, you know, roaming this globe and kind of working for the greater good uh, in a lot of different capacities, um, but we also have this whole other world, our personal life back home that, uh, you know, I, I certainly um, have had times when professionally everything is successful, you know, uh, operation to operation, mission to mission. Uh, but I've had, got total chaos going on back home and you still got to do your job. Right. Um, yeah. And it goes through those uh, those obstacles as well. Now, uh, not only have you spent time with um – the, the Navy SEALs, you also worked for a bit for uh, what we used to call no such agency, the NSA. Right. I was still active duty, and uh, it's a rare opportunity to get to work with uh, the interagency. And uh, my flavor was, yeah, the NSA, which, you know, most people don't know. It's seven to ten times larger than the CIA and the uh, and very technically advanced, doing some extraordinary stuff uh, across the globe. So, yeah, I had some time there, which gave me a little bit of a tech background, which inevitably is what I did a lot of towards the end of my career. Yeah, the uh, NSA is certainly an amazing organization. Now, when I look at your books, I see uh, these very unique kinds of drawings in, in your books. Clint, do you do those yourself? I do enjoy to draw, but those illustrators are professionals, <laughs> so okay. I wish I could. But the, in The Right Kind of Crazy, I had Tom Mandrake, who illustrated the entire Superman versus Batman series for DC Comics. He's also done a lot of work for Marvel, um, and so he did all the illustrations in, in this current book. And then in my previous books, 100 Deadly Skill series, those are illustrations by a guy who's a storyboarder for Hollywood, and that's why they have a certain storyboarding retro kind of look to them. He storyboards for 
you know, a lot of popular shows like um, Breaking Bad when it was popular, uh, The Walking Dead. So it's a different kind of uh, illustrator, but better for, you know, a how-to book like Hunter Deli Skills, which is showing you how to do things. Whereas The Right Kind of Crazy is a memoir, and so I wanted something a little more, you know, cinematic and superhero-like. I, I think it really is very unique uh, in the book business, and I, it really adds value, and, and I think it, some of them are just absolutely beautifully done. Now, when you have two, um, what what do you call these? Your, your, your special codes. If you aren't cheating, you aren't trying, <laughs> and uh, it's only illegal if you get caught. Now, <laughs> yeah. now, share with me a little bit about those two codes. Well, those are very old school, right? And it's unfortunate that culture changes based on, in, in our world, culture changes based on someone going and, you know, hiring an attorney. And that's the, the bottom line truth, you know. So when I grew up in the SEAL teams, when you went through BUDS and SEAL training, you would hear instructors actively yell it in your ear if you're not cheating, you're not trying, right? Hmm. And it's to breed a mentality of creativity that you will win over your adversaries no matter what it takes. In the SEAL community, certainly operationally has been known for that. We're going to do whatever we can in order to win. Unfortunately, it, it bled over into people's personal lives to a certain degree, or they tried to blame sayings like that based on some of the guy's behavior, uh, if it was criminal or if they got in trouble or whatever it was. So they literally, you're not even allowed to utter those words anymore in the community because they felt like it was sending the wrong message. But when you talk about combat and war and winning against your adversaries, it's not really the wrong message. It's just, you know, it doesn't matter what your ethos is or, you know, the sayings that are said, you're just going to have a percentage of guys that get in trouble. It's sure. just the way it is, no matter yeah. what the demographic is. SEAL community, the Marine Corps, the Army, you know, even your most elite, you know, C-suites at major corporations, you're still going to have right. people with questionable behavior regardless of sayings. But, you know, the military is very knee-jerk. You know, as soon as something bad happens, they react almost over the top a lot of times. And so, you know, if you're not cheating, you're not trying, and it's only illegal if you get caught, all kind of went away. But I feel like uh, this book certainly tries to resonate it once again, bring it to life, and explain it a little better. When people ask me what we do here at Stratfor, I always try to say that we make sense of the world. Uh, look, I've been here now going on almost 20 years, and I've had lots of opportunities to go elsewhere. I've uh, been lucky enough to have cobbled together a few books, but I can say this, that when I sit around the analyst table every morning and watch uh, some of our analysis being put together, I think people uh, would be surprised. And I think that for those of you who really want to see why uh, the world works the way it does, uh, without the bias, without the spin, without the inside the beltway kind of uh, takeaways, uh, I would encourage you to take a look at what we do. Let me make you a special offer. Go to stratfor.com slash Fred Burton and take a look at what we do every day. I don't think you'll be disappointed. I was a cop before I was an agent and 
And certainly, I, I would always just shake my head at the amount of trouble that uh, cops and agents can get themselves into. So I, I, I know exactly what you mean when you say that. Uh, it's, it's just like any other position or any other company where you, you have bad apples in, in every organization. That's right. That's right. I, I, I actually sat through an FBI profiler's uh, presentation on this. And what was really interesting, and he, he kind of showed all these different demographics and that the number he came up with was 10%. 10% of any population of people is going to have what he called aggressive behaviors or, or potentially questionable or violent behaviors, you know, and in that 10% is sociopath, psychopath. And he kind of went through the science and the behavioral piece of it, but that's the bottom line, regardless of vetting processes, regardless of buds, for example, it is the ultimate vetting process, six months of just hell. And yet, the population is still going to have 10% of those, uh, you know, questionable kind of guys. <laughs> you, sure. know, you just can't get around it. <clears throat> sure. Now, I see in this book, The Right Kind of Crazy, uh, we have uh, a fair number of redactions. I mean, I lived through that with my last book, Beirut Rules, and the agency took 11 months to clear the book, uh, which is a long time. But, you know, I know people that have waited years Uh how did you go through the, re- the redaction period in, in your book? How long did it take? Uh, it total 10 months for me. And for DOD, it didn't have a good system in place, unlike the FBI and the CIA. They'd been doing publication reviews, you know, for decades. The right. DOD is just kind of sort and trying to figure it out. And, and being a part of that is, without a doubt, frustrating because yeah. they'll, you'll send them a manuscript and then they turn around and they pull your DD-214, which kind of lays out your career and where you've been. Then they send the manuscript to all of those major commands. Then all those guys at the major commands receive it. And then they figure out and scratch their head, well, who's going to do this? To me, the answer is easy. It should be an SSO, right? A security officer who right. knows what's classified and what is not. And what they end up doing is they just give it to whoever's available. And it's a collateral job uh, amongst a bunch of other collateral jobs that one person is already doing. And so they, and this is at each major command. So for me, the FBI reviewed it, uh, JSOC reviewed it, SOCOM reviewed it, WARCOM reviewed it. (laughs) So, you know, and so you can imagine, Yeah. so the Pentagon is just herding cats and then the cats don't really want to do the job anyway. And so they, they read it and they go through and they redact and then it all gets consolidated back to the Pentagon, and then the Pentagon takes everything, puts it all together into one manuscript, and hands it back to you. And unfortunately, it's very subjective is what I found out. It's based on what that person thinks is sensitive, not what really is sensitive. And I came up with a quote that I think best represents them. When in doubt, black it out. Right? <laughs> I think I think that's what they ultimately end up doing. So for all you future you know, authors, writers out there, be prepared. It is not an objective process. <clears throat> no, I think you, you summed up the process from my experience, I think, quite quite well too. I I think you're right. I think it's very subjective at times and I think it boils down to that person that's reading that and Lord knows what's uh, their experience or background and and the events that you might have participated in and so forth and their perceptions of what could be classified and what's not. So it turns out to be somewhat of a mess and and somewhat dreadful. Yeah, you're you're correct. And 
we had a bunch of stuff redacted and there are places in the book where you see maybe a paragraph redacted. That paragraph is actually equivalent to five pages, but we weren't going to publish a book with five, you know, right. five pages in a row of blackout because it just isn't fair to the reader. And then you had to go back and rewrite for all of this stuff to actually make sense as you continue reading. So it's quite a mess, but I do believe that this is a new tactic by DOD. I think that is their trend. They can't tell publishers not to publish guys. They can't tell guys not to write books, but what they can do is just stall the system over and over and over again so that publishers start turning away military or government writers because they know that, oh, this is going to take a year. This is going to take two years. This is going to be a nightmare. We don't want to do it anymore. You know, I, at least in my community, I know for a fact people think that way. Like, how can we just prevent this altogether? <laughs> sure. And so uh, – and I don't blame them. I, I certainly used to be one of the active duty guys shaking my head every time a SEAL book came out. But then once you get out and you start working for yourself and trying to make a living and – you know, and the further you are away from the government and the military, the less you really think of it as a big deal anymore. It's only when you're in that bubble, right? That right. bubble, that lifestyle, it's it's a very, very small aperture. And you find yourself, you know, you know, very like prejudiced against everything. And and then when you get out and you see the and then you go, Oh wait, this is the real world <laughs> you kinda <laughs> you start going, eh. Whatever. I used to think that way. Not anymore. Clint, well, after a lifetime in in special forces and and the elite team such as SEAL Team 6, where do you see the future of um, these elite groups being? I mean, we see the success from, you know, you've had a very successful career post-military with your books and so forth. And we see we see the films, you know, your Zero Dark Thirty films. We see SEAL Team TV shows. We see all kinds of um, interest in special forces activities, you know, the killing of bin Laden and so forth. Uh, but where do you see the the special forces community going over the next 20 years? Uh, you know, I think that's a great question. Um, I think in recent history, special operations community has actually started to strategize a lot like your interagencies and the communication between everyone has been exceptional where it wasn't like that before. You know, here we are in the anniversary of, you know, the Iranian hostage um, deal. You know, that was the beginning of special operations actually starting to communicate with other people, right? Because right. it was a huge failure. So a lot of lessons learned from that is what's made special operations so surgical and so dynamic today. And I think in the future, it's only going to get better and be leveraged more and more often. In my experience, whether I was working for a Democrat or a Republican, the one common tool that was always utilized in the Oval Office was special operations, right? So right. everyone likes it across the board. It's probably the the most bipartisan hammer that <laughs> that's out there. Sure. Um, and when you want to, and when they want to use it, they use it, and they use it freely, which is great for us because you know the pinnacle for any special operator career is war. It's going and using what you train for, which is kind of the opposite for almost every other career field. But for us, that's it's a big deal. So you want your presidents to use you and you to and utilize you properly. So whether it's Bin Laden or Baghdadi or Anwar al-Awlaki um, or Sami, I mean, all the top targets, the more we do it, uh, the better we're going to get in 20 years from now. You won't need 
conventional forces all that much. You'll need superior air power for sure. You'll need great intelligence on the ground. And then you just need a very lethal hammer. And it takes care of probably, I think, I feel like it takes care of, you know, 90% of the issues um, as long as the intel is correct, as long as, you know, everything is coordinated properly and, you know, you don't find yourself in a situation where, like where this all began in Iran hostage rescue. Do you see at some point in time perhaps uh, the use of uh, special forces or uh, tier one kind of units against, uh, let's say, nation state espionage targets like the Russians or the Chinese? You know, I I think it's probably already begun in my uh, understanding and experience that you're, I think tier one organizations have to kind of go down that path when you have that kind of experience on the battlefield, organizationally or just leadership-wise, it's a, it's a natural next move. It's a paralleling effort to have those types of guys also play a part against the higher level or tier one, what I call tier one countries, you know, when you're really going head-to-head with the Russians, the Chinese, or anybody else. I think it's it makes perfect sense. And, and by the way, our adversaries have been doing that for quite some time. You know, it's it's Russian military uh, that is very good at operating against U.S. government operations and assets, as you probably already know. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, I really thank you for what you have done, uh, Clint, for our country and your service and uh, certainly uh, the right kind of crazy. I think it's going to do well uh, if it's anything uh, like the success that we saw with 100 Deadly Skills. So thank you for being on uh, Stratfor Talks today, and we really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. Continue the good work with your reports. And yeah, I'll be, uh, I'll be watching you guys, even if you might not be watching me. Awesome. Hey, before I let you go, are you a Glock or a SIG guy? <laughs> it depends. Am I swimming across a beach? <laughs> so if you swim with a gun, you're going to swim with a Glock because the tolerances are a lot looser, like a 1911, and you know that it's reliable and it's going to fire even with sand and salt. But for everything else, it's SIG. Well, that's the first explanation I've heard of that, and we've asked uh, several people, so I appreciate that. Yeah, SIGs will jam with a little bit of sand, a little bit of salt. You're pretty much carrying a paperweight with you. <laughs> well, you could always use it as a hammer. That's right. Or throw it at him and run. You know? that, <laughs> that works good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We'll have links to Clint Emerson's book, The Right Kind of Crazy, in our show notes. For more geopolitics and global insight, be sure to visit worldview.stratfor.com. And don't forget, there's a special link for podcast listeners, stratfor.com slash Fred Burton. That's stratfor.com slash Fred Burton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>